0: Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period.
1: For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods.
0: You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period.
1: This week on Unexplainable, The Bleeding Edge. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, it's John Gwilan. I'm off this week, and so is the rest of the team here at The Weeds. We'll be back in the new year with even more policy deep dives. But for now, we're revisiting a conversation with Dylan Matthews, Dara Lind, and Atlantic staff writer Annie Lowry about the time tax and why it's so hard to get government benefits. I'll let Annie explain more. Enjoy the show.
2: Time tax is a way of describing administrative burden when you need something from the government. So like maybe a SNAP benefit or, you know, a federally financed student loan, you tend to have to apply for it. And in the case of welfare benefits, you have to maintain the benefit. So every six months or a year, you have to go back and verify your income and explain why you need this and deserve this. What this does is it shifts the paperwork burden from the government onto the individual. And it can be really, really, really burdensome. Some benefits in the United States are really hard to maintain and apply for, so much so that people don't bother doing it. But I think you can kind of step back and ask how hard is it to get stuff writ large in the United States? Because it's, it's also, it's not just the welfare state. So, you know, here I am in San Francisco, which has probably the worst housing crisis in the United States right now. Housing is extremely expensive. It's virtually impossible here to like add a second story and add an apartment to your own home, that kind of thing. That's a time tax. After I wrote this big piece about it in The Atlantic last year, I got a ton of reader emails. um, And my favorite one was from this guy who was like, you're telling me, have you ever tried to move a a horse across the international border? It takes months of paperwork. Have, have you, Annie? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> and so, you know, a, in terms of healthcare, education benefits, starting a small business, it's just everywhere. It's just this kludge and it's miserable and it really, really affects people's lives. And it's kind of, I would even say even now, understudied, undertheorized. And, and the government has paid very little attention to it except to use it to stop people from getting stuff.
3: So it's really interesting to hear you describe this in a way that kind of broadens out from the traditional focus of administrative burden on like safety net programs and on the relationship between the government and someone who, in theory, the government is trying to help, which is to say someone who the government thinks is like currently in a marginalized or less fortunate position. That relationship kind of has this implicit politics to it that if we have a welfare state, clearly we've decided that people deserve help. And also in a kind of an implicit like account of how it got so bad. Right. Don Moynihan and Pamela Hurd, who are the gurus of administrative burden on the academic side and whose work, you know, I think both of us <laughs> rely on a great deal, have this account of, well, you know, there's a political argument for means testing that then results in this administrative burden downstream. There's a political argument for making programs more restrictive that means that the like state legislators who put these things into effect don't necessarily understand just how much worse they're making it, but they understand that they're making it worse. What you're talking about now seems to be a lot closer to kind of the kind of general eye-rolling reaction that you get whenever you talk about bureaucracy. One of the reasons I've been attracted to administrative burden as a concept is that it kind of... It takes the universality of, oh, we all have to deal with crappy bureaucracy out of it. And it's like, no, actually, there is a meaningful difference between you, a person who like has to go to the DMV every few years to get your license renewed, and somebody who is responsible every single month for making sure that they haven't been kicked off the WIC rolls. Can you talk a little bit about like what you kind of think the the distributive politics of this are and like why you're thinking about this in a in a broader way than that kind of traditional welfare state focus?
2: The time tax is a regressive filter on every progressive policy. It is regressive. And I mean that in a few ways. If we were talking 30 or 40 years ago, we might say by having a means test and by having a kind of paperwork burden that you have to go through in order to access a program, that's gonna make sure that only people who really need it get it. It's efficient. It it does a job. So people who aren't getting SNAP benefits or food stamps, probably not getting them because it's not worth it for them to go through the hassle. They don't really need them. So it's not really a problem if in the pool of people who might qualify for these benefits, you know, there's a large portion who aren't getting them. Maybe we're undercounting their income. Maybe they're doing just fine. Whatever. Whatever. We now know that that is not true, and in fact is kind of dementedly opposite. And the people who need things the most, who are the most worst off, struggle the most to access these programs. It's not the case that the harder you make it, it kind of acts as a little test, so that only the people who get it. No, 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 no. This is regressive. There's kind of the um, the sort of simple, straightforward, like, do you have a computer? or a smartphone? Do you have access to the internet or a data plan? Can you search to find out what's out there, right? Like, do you know what's out there? There's a huge, like, public information piece to this. There's all this research now about the cognitive load of poverty that it just makes you worse at doing stuff like this because you're, tired and you have other things to worry about. So that's part of why I think that we see this as being like um, crucially understood as being regressive, which is not something that I think that I, I don't even think now it's fully sunken in for progressives. You still see folks trying to means test everything and not realizing that that's going contrary to what you're trying to do, with the means test itself, right? It has this weird like uroboros to it. You're completely right that discourse about what is effectively the time tax but isn't described as such goes back really far in analysis of the welfare state. So like you can look at like Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward's work like 50 years ago and they're talking about this very same thing. You cited Moynihan and Hurd who are amazing. You know, there's a lot of understanding of this for the welfare state, but I think that you actually see it across government policies. And so like one place where I've been thinking about it a lot is like higher education and the way that we, instead of just providing school for folks and paying for it, we make them go into these kind of like neoliberal financing schemes. And, you know, that's not part of the welfare state, but this all interacts. And there's really come to be means testing all over the place in government, though critically not for certain things that high-income people like, like 529 college savings plans. We have a really clear understanding of what this means for welfare benefits, but all of these things are affecting people in the same way. And so that's part of the reason that I like to step back and, you know, like, um, should we burden people who are trying to bring horses across international borders? It's the it's the pressing policy question that I ask myself every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think part of what's interesting about the time tax is sometimes when people like identify big sweeping problems in, in how the government spends money or ministers programs, Like, it's easy to be against the thing in the abstract and hard to get into the nitty gritty. Like, it's easy to complain about corporate welfare and harder to, like, tell someone that their defense project that helps their specific industry and their congressional district is bad. And part of what was interesting about so much of your work on this is you're very clear about, like, the political pressures that come into this. You had a recent piece on on sort of some efforts that Code for America is doing to, to fight it and just like going through the list of things you have to say if you're a mom in Louisiana trying to get food stamp benefits, like you have to uh, show that you are not going to spend anything on a cruise ship or at a psychic, you have to read about drug court and alternatives to abortion. All these things, like, I can understand the state legislator who wrote that bill that led to that.
3: Probably a series of bills passed at a series of state legislative sessions so that nobody was actually thinking, what are we already asking of them?
1: But yeah, I I guess I I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, like, the overall political economy of the time tax. Where does it come from? What seems to be motivating it?
2: I'm not a big fan of both sides in policy reporting. <laughs> but this is a place where both sides have done something and it's worth identifying the pressures that both of them are under. So, on the Republican side, you see a pretty straightforward effort to make things harder to access through administrative means. So, if you look at Moynihan and Heard, they point out that this is like true for welfare programs, right? We're going to make these hoops so hard to jump through that nobody's going to get this stuff. But it's also true in terms of like voting voter suppression, right? We're going to make it harder to vote in order to reduce the number of people who vote. Republicans also tend to have although Democrats share in this, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's just them, but they have a lot of concerns about programmatic integrity in terms of fraud. So if like one person is getting a benefit and they're scamming the government, this is a really big problem and there are multiple systems put into place to prevent this from happening that also kick out a bunch of other people. Fraud happens in every safety net program. It tends to be isolated cases. It doesn't tend to be that big of an issue. The fraud and error rate tends to be pretty low. There's some issues with the UI systems, which I would sort of segregate out as seeing there seems to be some actual issues there. But like in terms of like Medicare, Medicaid, all the fraud is happening on the provider side. It's not usually individuals like lying in order to get the benefit. It does happen, but how many people are you going to, who deserve the program, quote unquote, are you going to kick off in order to find the one person who doesn't? And, and again, this isn't like such a big issue. I'd also note that, There's this issue around, like, who is administering these programs? One thing that I do think that you see on the Republican side also is that they're like, well, like, the government is terrible about administration. We're going to give these contracts to um, firms, like, uh, for-profit firms to administer these programs. But because they're not the government themselves, they tend to be on these long contracts. They're very clunky. Literally, just how do you apply for things is this, like, kind of eternal problem. So then on the Democratic side... There's this obsession with means testing, and I think that that in part comes from being in a high-inequality economy, right? If you want to have a lot of policy that is shuffling money to lower-income folks, you need some mechanism for doing that. They apply a means test to everything. You can see that they're trying to do it with student loan forgiveness, and it's a giant mess because, like, the Department of Education doesn't have access to the IRS data for this, So you can try to make it such that you're only forgiving student loans on the basis of other economic characteristics, but it's actually pretty hard to do. Second thing is that there's this kind of, like, snowballing effect where it's really easy to add stuff and it's really hard to take it away. And there's no real process for sort of having a state or the federal government step back and look at the process and say, okay, how can we, like, streamline this? Some states do it themselves, but, like, it doesn't happen naturally. And I think also, you know, there's just this... um, One of the many issues here is that we don't have programs managed by a centralized authority. And very often, one hand is not even talking to the other. So my favorite example of this is that income is determined in different ways by different programs. There's not a single standard of income. And different programs ask for different things, like how much money have you made in the last 30 days versus what was your income in the month, two months before or whatever it is in other countries, they have these kind of like more centralized things where the government just already has this data because it has your income data. And then they can kind of tell you what you qualify for. But because of the federal structure here and the lack of sort of centralization, that doesn't happen. So that's a very long answer to your question of of kind of like how we got here and how you end up with this, like just tons of sludge in these applications.
3: I want to pull out uh, something that you mentioned in the middle of that about, you know, you you described it as efficiency. I think of it as as kind of like the balance of equities on, you know, fraud versus lack of uptake. Because it's just it's it seems to me that that is a problem that the elected branches of government face generally. Right? You do not see elected politicians talking honestly about trade-offs. They tend to identify one thing that they want to set to zero and. Other costs that are that are required to set that to zero totally fall by the wayside. And it's not just that there isn't a lot of attention to who are we pushing out of this program, who could be benefiting from it, but it's assumed that if you do deserve the program, that it doesn't hurt you at all to have to spend a lot of your time doing this. And I think that that's based especially for Democrats in this idea that if we can just demonstrate that everyone who is using this program is deserving, then some of the stigma and some of the skepticism and some of the political headwinds will fall away because everyone will acknowledge that this isn't a vehicle for fraud. And instead what ends up happening is if you put a lot of effort into investigating and lifting up fraud in these programs, the message that gets sent is that these programs are rife with fraud. And so in addition to kind of all of the things that aren't considered part of the calculus, like which people that we want in theory want to be benefiting aren't able to take advantage of it, it ends up weakening the political case for the welfare state instead of what it's in theory supposed to do, which is strengthen it.
2: That's a really good point. And, you know, in terms of the kind of like nitty gritty of how this happens, the federal government um, might penalize a state for having too much fraud in a program. What they do not penalize the state for is having a high rate of procedural denials, which is when somebody applies and they should get the program, like they should get their SNAP benefit or they should get their WIC, and they don't get it because they can't finish the paperwork or there's some paperwork problem. And so, you know, in terms of things that the government could do to make this work better, it could tell the states to get better data on procedural denials, and it could hold them responsible for denying people benefits because they screw up on their paperwork, which happens all the time because the paperwork is really, 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 really confusing, and the states are not great about administering it and doing their part either. So that's like one thing that they could do to start to kind of balance those pressures a little bit more. I'd also note that there's no standard for what's fraud in these programs. Like, what is fraud? is a really hard question to answer. There's not a standard definition that applies across programs. So just like what what is fraudulent versus mistaken activity? people often don't know, like, how to answer these questions. And so um, I think that often we ascribe a certain intentionality to folks when they're actually just kind of trying to get the paperwork done. And also people's lives are messy in a way that is hard to capture in paperwork. So one thing that comes up over and over and over again, and Kathy Eden has great research on this, is that, like, the question of whether a child lives with, you know, a grandparent or something, who is getting the benefits for that kid can become really complicated because kids often shuffle between houses. And so you get these cases of quote-unquote fraud in which multiple people are claiming or something. But it's actually just like life is messy. Very often people are like moving between houses and kids get shuffled around and partnerships form and break up. It's just life, but it's hard to sort that out on a piece of paper.
1: Yeah, we did an episode a few weeks ago on tax prep and uh, Libby and I were talking about sort of how this comes up in like volunteer tax prep in D.C. and, And the definition of child is by far the biggest thing that like the definition is different for head of household status versus the child tax credit versus the EITC. And that's just within the tax code. Like, I w- imagine SNAP and Medicaid and all these other programs have their own definition of who's whose child.
2: Absolutely. And it can often be hard, right? Like, who has a bank account to receive payments or a stable address to get money that comes by check. Folks working in nonprofits very often become sort of experts at navigating this on behalf of people or, you know, social workers in schools, social workers at hospitals do a lot of this. Um, It's just it's just really messy.
1: We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about some approaches to remedying the time tax and how to make government simpler for people. So stay tuned.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital-I informed, it can help define and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues— They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs' furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds.
1: And we're back. So Annie has walked us through sort of the time tax, where it came from, sort of how this becomes a major burden, particularly on, on low-income families. Your most recent piece was on Code for America and their approach to the time tax and trying to lower burdens for low-income people to to access programs. Tell me a bit about their strategy and sort of how successful it is and, and how much you can actually just sort of do as programmers.
2: So Code for America, it's interesting because they start, oh gosh, more than a decade ago now. And they're doing these kind of like neat municipal programs. So like one of the first things they do is this like adopt a fire hydrant, dig out your local fire hydrant community type thing. And they've become essentially like a an administrative burden focused social justice organization. They create really nice, generally web native tools and often mobile-first tools to help folks navigate the government to do things like if you have a criminal record that could be cleared, they'll do kind of like automatic clearing, which will make it easier for you to get housing, a job, that kind of thing. And people often don't do it for themselves despite the benefits. Or they'll create really great interfaces so that it's easy to sign up for like the child tax credit, that kind of thing. And two things that I really like about them. One is that they they have a hiring initiative so that they get people who've used these programs actually work there. And they try to stay really close to end users. So they're constantly running surveys and talking to people, including folks who are unhoused or homeless or um, very low income about like, okay, what do you not understand about this? How, how, how are you going to get that? And the second thing is they understand that actually web-based and mobile-based tools are not going to work for everybody. So like if you're a 54-year-old person who's just not very web savvy and doesn't have the internet in your house and you don't have a laptop and you still have a flip phone, it's going to work a lot better for you, for you to like get on the actual landline telephone and talk to somebody. And so the sort of theory behind Code for America is, okay if we can get the people who can use web tools to use web tools, states will have more resources to devote to those people that need that higher touch experience. And that works better for them and is, in fact, more efficient, even if like we can get a social worker or somebody out to that person, that kind of thing. And so, you know, there's great promise to this. The problem, though, is that like they can't change the underlying guts of anything. They cannot rewrite forms that are sort of set out by a regulatory process with rules that come from the states and the federal government. They sit on top of the problem, I think, is one issue. And the second is that, you know, I think that they're moving in this direction, but they're very often not the vendor who is administering or creating the, like, web forms and the back end for the state either. Again, they sort of sit in this middle layer in between. Um, So there's a lot that they can do. And they've started to do, I think, a lot more advocacy for fixing things at the root. So it's this funny thing where I think that there is a lot of promise, but I think that they'd be the first to tell you that if you really want to make a lot of change, you got to you got to vote this stuff in and you have to change the administrative process up at the top.
3: This really does strike me as kind of the core of a solutions discussion, because like it's something that I don't want to understate, but at the same time in the like conversations that I've had with vendors who are very thoughtful about this stuff with people who are in government or who have been in government who are very thoughtful about this stuff. I think what they're really worried about is that the message that it can't be fixed unless the political branches fix it can get overstated when in fact it's not just like tinkering around the edges. And I think that something that you mentioned in the first segment is really relevant here, because when you have not just the split between legislators and and chief executive who enacted the policy and the regulators who are supposed to be enforcing it, but also farming it out to contractors. The contractors are given a set of how to administer the program that is itself distinct from the regulations. And so they you end up with more of an ossified sense of what the program can and should be than even the regulation ends up would have required. And that can make it hard to change things in a way that is difficult to tell whether it's because the statute requires it or just because it's the way it's always been done, like something that... Something that I was talking to, to some folks recently about is, you know, when you have websites that are closed for maintenance on a regular basis outside of normal office hours, which like that's not a thing that we think of a website as being. And in practice, it can be because it's complicated to move sensitive data from one system to another system. So it's good to have a time every day when that's being done, you know, or like if you have an expectation that someone is going to be able to like get a live chat and a person is going to be able to help them on the other side and you don't have someone staffing that website 24 hours a day, then like in order to keep that promise, you have to keep the website closed for certain times. So like it can be hard for the people at the user interface, whether that's institutions layering themselves over the thing like code for America or whether it's vendors to know what the distinction is, but like oftentimes, and I think more so with vendors than with, you know, Code for America kind of coming in as like an additional party. You can figure that out. Right. And like you can figure out what the space is of things that people are going to be resistant to changing because they think of them as being required. But in fact, they're just the way things have always been done.
2: There's a lot of opportunity for reducing this because like, there's tons of low-hanging fruit here, and it exists on all sorts of different branches. So like, I'm a big advocate of the idea that there shouldn't be work requirements in any program. I recognize that that's not going to happen for a lot of reasons, but work requirements are the source of a ton of cludge because they're really hard to comply with. And like, we could talk endlessly about whether they actually get people to work, or not, but like one way or another, it's, it's on the margin. And, you know, you tell me why we need to have a work requirement in a nutrition program, right? Nutrition so that people can eat food, which you need to burn calories in order to work. So there's, there's stuff like that. Like, you know, work requirements and acid tests, I would just get rid of entirely. They're just completely pointless you know not pointless they they have a point but 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 they're hard but then there's also the all point sorts is of, bad yeah but the point yes. is the point is bad um then there's all sorts of stuff about like can you get the back ends talking to each other a little bit more so a lot of states they do these kind of like single portal type things where you know you'll apply and at least the big programs will kind of be In concert. So, you know, if you're getting Medicaid, they'll make sure that you're also getting SNAP. They do this a lot if you have kids, which is really, really important. But I think, like, doing that sort of like, let's set a standard of income. Let's like fiddle with the requirements on the back end such that they match each other so that we'll know what you should get. Because there's tons and tons of safety net programs, but actually, really, SNAP is a big one, Medicaid is a big one, something like TANF cash welfare is really tiny. So if you just get the big programs talking to each other, that's going to do a lot of good. But then, like, can you just make the applications nicer? A bunch of states have done this, and it's worked out really, really great. Can you make states responsible for, like, wait times, for procedural denials, that kind of stuff? Can you make it so that the states are required to have a web and a mobile-first application for people? Because, again, that means that, like, people can do it themselves, and that gives you more resources to actually get to the folks who can't do it themselves of whom there are also a lot. And there's also ways to do better public information to make people aware of things and to take a bit of more of the burden on the government itself to help people access these benefits. One other thing I would just cite is, you know, the federal data collection is awful here. So you can go to the OIRA website, and because of the Paperwork Reduction Act, they're supposed to be collecting data on how long it takes people to get this stuff. And the estimates are awful. They're garbage. They only apply to certain types of federal paperwork. Government has no idea how long it takes to get stuff. That's an easy problem to fix. Just, like, run some surveys. You do this, right? (laughs) Make OIRA do some more work. They love paperwork.
1: There are some really inspiring sort of examples of civic tech being used for this. Uh, your piece goes through some of them. There was a really great piece about six years ago by Yeren Liu in the Times Magazine about the creation of a new CalFresh website to get food stamps in California. I really recommend it since it's like your coverage is, is very lucid about the problems, but it's just the story of these guys who are used to coding apps for like normal companies. And they they come up with a website where you can apply to get food stamps. And that's really easy. Like they, they know how to do that to make something that has nice CSS and is well designed and and looks like a nice startup. All of their trials and tribulations were weaving through the thicket of legislative dictates, uh, making sure they weren't offending relevant staffers, getting money to do it, and having to choose whether to get money from philanthropies, which is kind of like icky to have these like rich donors paying for government service versus like applying for an IT contract and like the IT procurement setup is wildly messed up. I really recommend it as just like a naif's go to Sacramento story. Uh, And uh, My friend Dave Gorino is one of the programmers, so I'm biased, but it it was a good reminder that all of their work is really important. And I, I really admire what Code for America is doing. You do at some level need legislators to step up and and on on not the the ties that they've put for people.
2: Yeah, totally. And and notably, so there is the USDs, the United States Digital Service, which does kind of internal consulting for the government agencies, the federal agencies to do this. And then uh, in the General Services Administration, there's 18F. Those are both, you know, like a decade old. And then a lot of states have kind of like offices to kind of do this stuff also. To pull the really big levers, you need Congress, and then you need a new kind of regulatory process to come out of that. You know, I think there's more interest in this stuff. I was hopeful that when the child tax credit, happened and now seems to be perished, that there might be more focus on kind of beefing up the IRS as a benefits administrator, which I know is something that Janet Yellen is very interested in doing since so much stuff just gets run through the tax code now and the IRS is not a very adept benefits administrator. But they do have all this data, so they could be a very good one. I think if you were doing sort of like blue sky thinking, like if you were starting from scratch, you would just want to, I think, federalize everything and run it through the Social Security Administration. So that's... Um, That's a free idea for a friendly (laughs) legislator in Congress, if you really, I guess, except for the health programs, probably you wouldn't want to do that. But yeah.
3: The thing about starting from scratch is what I always end up arriving at when I'm thinking about this stuff, because it's not really just about having the bill in Congress that strips out the kind of means testing and the other political and policy obstacles that you've identified, it's preventing every subsequent Congress from then saying, you know what, there was this really high profile case of fraud because the non-custodial parent was using was applying for things and then the two parents were like, you know, splitting the difference, blah, blah, blah. And so we're going to add this test. And so in the next Congress, you know, there's someone going to add another test. And like these sorts of things can get added to must pass bills. No one is going to make a big stink about this is the reason that we can't have the, like, annual appropriations bill for HHS... It requires not just that kind of, you know, constant vigilance on the part of the political branches, but even more than that, a willingness to see the status quo of a program as like, yes, okay, this wasn't something that was designed all at once, but we have to think of it as something that exists all at once now and actually do a 360 and take stock of what we have and all of the ways that it's affecting people. Because even though this is not what anyone would have designed, it is the complete system that we have right now. And I think that there's a real resistance to doing that, because for most government programs that everyone thinks are broken on some level, which is to say most government programs, like it can kind of seem self-evident that they're broken and that they should be fixed. And so taking them as they are and saying, what exactly does this do? And can we see this as a single operating organ, even if we didn't really want it to work that way, is something that people just aren't, they'd much rather spend their energy thinking about ways to improve it than taking stock of what's going on.
2: And I think that just starting to think about what is the time tax associated with this as we pass it, is a question that I think that legislators could ask themselves. So I think all the time about the Sarah Cliff story that she wrote. This is probably like 10 years ago now about folks who got their insurance through the exchanges and were like jealous of folks who got Medicaid and they felt like it was unfair. And in part, that was because Medicaid pay for more stuff more cheaply, right? Because with Medicaid, you don't have a ton of like co-pays and, and that kind of thing. But it was also because like Medicaid, you just got it and then you just were insured. You didn't have to go through this whole like giant Rube Goldberg process to get your insurance. Obviously, (laughs) if we want to relitigate how Obamacare happened. Nobody thought it was like beautiful when it was passing. But I think it was underestimated how much people would hate having to like actually procure their own insurance. And then notably, like the American medical system, we have not talked about this that much, is like the greatest most annoying source of the time tax for people where everybody is like their own insurance administrator and you have to argue to get things covered with your insurer and with your hospital. And it's just a giant black hole time suck that really contributes to cost in the medical system also. But yeah, I think that you're exactly right. Think about like how we could have things. And then also stopping and saying like how annoying is this going to be for people to do. I remember there's like um some small program, the point was to get people broadband, but it like it was like a $50 tax credit. And it's like who is going to bother with this? <laughs> some small number of people. Just provide broadband. Just provide broadband. You know, do things directly. Because You're not going to get it to people and and it's just really annoying when you do it that way and i again i think the democrats um have a little bit to answer for when they're like okay we'll set up a complicated tax financing scheme to make sure that you know only these folks and blah 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 and it's just really hard
1: well and i think that breeds kind of a culture in some sort of left of center organizations where sort of any expansion is good and you're in the political process and so it's going to be messy but it's a win I used to write more about like EITC and and this stuff than they do now. And I would sometimes bring proposals to like simplify it or make it easier to to get to folks at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And I love the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. They do a lot of great work for low-income people, but they're very much like, let's make the tweak to Snap that will get like 100,000 more people, like $25 more in benefits. They're not like big, systematic people. And so I think they have sort of an initial fight or flight reaction to any kind of change to programs like this, because it might be a threat, it might be a right wing scheme to like cut and undermine the program. And you need all these people, you need the people in the the weeds and the people thinking blue sky. But yeah, there was not always an acknowledgement that getting the little incremental win also incrementally makes all this vastly more complicated for people on the user end
2: one big theme, I think, that comes through my work is like government should do more work and people should do less. So it should be the government's job to make sure that people get the EITC. If people should be getting the EITC and they're not, like that's a government problem. Like the tax authorities should be able to figure that one out. Because right, it's like one in six, one in six people doesn't get the EITC and it's thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. And again, we know perfectly well that those are mostly people, not who are like at the very high end of the income strata for getting EITC. They're out of the bottom. And so um, once you start looking through this lens, there's just no number of policies that you wouldn't think about changing in a way that just like let people get them easily and made the government work so that not everything was like the DMV. Although h- hilariously, a lot of DMVs have gotten a lot better in terms of customer service. <laughs> Yeah, like
1: not to jinx it, but the DC DMV is pretty nice in my experience.
2: It's much better than the California. California, I've not had the greatest experiences. DC DMV, I always thought was like actually pretty good.
1: I had a, also a nice sort of controlled experiment in this as a teenager because I grew up in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not really a state that has laws. And so they don't do they don't do learner's permits. You're just allowed to drive at 15 and a half. But I wanted to drive in Vermont because we lived on the border. And so I had to go get a Vermont learner's permit. So I got to deal with both DMVs. And the Vermont DMV was just like the nicest human being. Like, I want to be friends with Carl still. <laughs> he was so nice and so helpful. <laughs> and like the New Hampshire DMV, everyone was underpaid and angry and wanted you to die. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing what investing in good civic services can get you.
2: <laughs> I know everybody hates bureaucrats in the United States. The U.S. could use a bigger and better funded bureaucracy. It really could. I talked to folks who work in these state offices all the time and they would love just like a computer that works and to make a living wage without having to like waitress or do uber on the weekend and like i get why this is a really heavy lift but like spend more money on this stuff and you just make people's lives easier you really 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 do and you make it such that you don't have to have all these like legal aid societies and homeless shelters and hospitals doing all of this work for the state on behalf of people who are just like perplexed I, also, I like the idea that you're the only young person in Vermont, and that was why, yeah, just our, our gentocratic Vermont was like, wow, we have a kid. Get that kid. We, in have, kid. we
1: have to raise him well.
2: Oh. <laughs> it takes a
3: village to raise Dylan Matthews. We got to yeah. get
1: him in a Subaru.
3: Um,
1: <laughs> on that note, um, we're going to take one more break, uh, but when we come back, we have a, a hot NBER paper on administrative burden and some of the, sort of the real life damage that high burdens can do, so uh, stay with us. We are back, and this week's white paper is a couple years old, but it's an oldie but a goodie, and it's called "Program Recertification Costs: Evidence from SNAP" by Tatiana Homanov and Jason Somerville, two economists. And what they're doing here is looking at the process for sort of eligibility determinations for SNAP or food stamps. A lot of people go on and off food stamps during sort of hard economic times. There's a lot of churn in the program and there are processes to ensure annually that people are still eligible, that they still fall below the income thresholds, asset, asset thresholds, other other requirements. And they wanted to see what that kind of burden of recertifying does to the program. They have a pretty clever strategy to sort of like isolate the effect of the burden, which is people who are assigned to later interview dates uh, to get recertified have less time to reschedule if they miss the interview. And so they might be likelier to get kicked off of the program if the process goes wrong. And that's exactly what they find, that totally randomly, people who randomly get later assignments to interviews to, to get their recertification lose about $600 in benefits uh, on average the next year. And in many of these cases, they find that people just get re-enrolled. It's sometimes just a mistake. They get back on. They've missed some benefits, which is awful, but they're not totally lost. But about a a quarter remain off for an entire year, including many cases where people qualify. It's just this is a major administrative burden that's getting people off of a program they could really use. So. I thought this was just a very nice, clean example of the dynamics we've been talking about. I'm curious if you two have thoughts on, on some of the, the work here.
3: Something that I want to highlight that the authors talk through is that one of the frontiers of administrative burden work is is improving public information, Annie, as, as you kind of laid out a couple of times, and making sure that people are aware that they're eligible for things. The great thing about focusing on recertification is it totally takes that set of questions out of the equation because definitionally, these are people who already know that this program exists and that they're eligible for it. So it takes away one of the kind of easy talking points i think uh, policymakers generally tend to describe policy failures as communications failures and like it takes that set of of excuses totally away the other thing it does is make it clear that it's not about people choosing not to participate like you know yes okay you don't have to just because you're you're eligible for a public program doesn't mean that you have to use it but like if you are already eligible And you have a later interview date, you're, you know, getting kicked off the rolls for the next month, whereas somebody with an earlier interview date isn't. That's not because, like, took the advantage of having those three more weeks to think before your interview and decided that you're philosophically opposed to continuing to receive benefits, you know. So focusing on recertification in particular, kind of, it boils the problem down to a few sub parts in ways that makes it a little easier to focus
2: on solutions. I think it's a great point. And one of the other things that this kind of brought up for me is why why do we do interviews at all? Right? Mm-hmm. Why do we do them? there's, I think, two answers to that question. So first, it's just, if you talk to folks who are applying to these programs, very often the government will tell you, like a social worker will tell you, just apply and we'll sort it out in the interview because it's really confusing. Just get your stuff on paper and then we'll fix it once we do the in-person interview portion. And as as you pointed out, right, they, they do tell you about other stuff. They connect you with other services. Um, you know, these interviews can be useful for people. But then there's this whole, like, fraud prevention side of it. You know, this is a place where racial bias comes in. This is really, really intimidating for people. And in a lot of states, there's a way to kind of get past the in-person interview depending on certain life circumstances that you might have. But like, what if it's just really intimidating to go or embarrassing to go down to like, this office, like a welfare office, and talk about yourself and like bring a bunch of documentation and you got to find somebody to watch your kids. You have to get there. In-person interviews um, were suspended in a lot of places during the pandemic. And it wasn't like they saw a giant increase in fraud related to the suspension of the interview. So I think this is one of these places where like the cost benefit strikes me as really questionable and, you know, would there be a huge amount of pushback if if this was just suspended permanently? What if it was made a lot easier so y- you could just call with your information and you could, like, do FaceTime or something like that or even just, like, have a phone conversation instead of this kind of thing? So one of these places where you read this paper and you're like, why are we doing this at all? Why are we doing this at all? And, you know, to your point of stepping back and just asking, what's the point here? It takes a tremendous amount of state resources to do this too it's not like it's easy on the state either to have to like do all of these in person or phone interviews and then do them for recertification also it's a lot of work
1: (laughs) well and i think this gets to to some of the points uh you've been making about like information sharing that you could in theory have a system where it's not based on your present year income but your past year income to to deal with sort of the fact that people's incomes change over the year The Social Security Administration knows what everyone made. At at the very least, it knows taxably what people made. And if they had some sort of self-employment income on top of that, the IRS knows about that or should know about it if they filed an accurate tax return. But the information sharing between that and uh, the state agencies is quite bad. (laughs) Um, And a lot of it is like breaking down those bureaucratic barriers that I understand, like, from a path dependence perspective, why they exist, um but don't seem to be serving like the beneficiaries of these programs at all.
2: This is like one of my spicier opinions that not a lot of people in government share, but say that you're getting something and uh, your income goes up and you no longer qualify. Very often, there's this clawback, and the clawbacks are really painful, and they put people in a really precarious position. And this is like the heart, right? I'm like, just never claw anything back just forget about it. (laughs) Just don't do it. And it would be a a lot more efficient that way. You know, if somebody meets the income threshold and they graduate out of the program, great, like let them go. But just like forget about it. And I think that that would be Pretty unpopular. I can only imagine the sort of the, that you might actually get a little bit of blowback for that kind of thing. But yeah, you know, start from a position of trust and saying like we don't want people not to have this. So we're gonna base it on prior year income. And then if something changes, you tell us, right? And if we find out something changes, then we'll, you know, stop giving you the program. Again, it gets politically hard, but I think that the, the just pure policy question, again, if you're coming from this position of like, we really want these people to have this, we know their life is hard, we want to make it as easy as possible on them. What does it look like when you start thinking that way? I also just,
1: papers like this always remind me of of how much good social science comes from totally dysfunctional public programs, <laughs> that this is about the dysfunction. And that's kind of a rarity in, in economics literature, in that often you'll read a paper that is using the dysfunction to make another point. So a recent paper I liked that was a lot like this was uh, Manasi Deshpande and uh, Michael Muller-Smith had a paper on supplemental security income. So this is sort of a disability income program. Uh, Notably, people under 18 can get it, unlike Social Security disability insurance, which you have to earn. And there was like a sudden change to how likely people were to be reviewed for eligibility upon turning 18 in the 96 welfare reform law, that there was just like a sudden and totally random shift in how likely you were to get called in to uh, be reevaluated and maybe lose your benefits. And they've learned a lot of interesting things from that. like. Not getting SSI makes you 20% more likely to, to get charged with a criminal offense. The real gut punch finding for me was that youth are twice as likely to be charged with an illicit income generating offense than they are to maintain steady employment at $15,000 a year or more in the labor market. And that's like devastating and an important thing to know about disability insurance. But also like the whole process to led to that finding is a disaster. <laughs> like we, we should have not have these sharp cutoffs and like who's eligible for what.
3: Right. You end up with this body of work demonstrating the benefits to people of the welfare state based on people who deserve welfare benefits falling out of the welfare state. Like, you know, yes, on a basic, you know, scientific ethics level, it's not that unfamiliar to be like, oh, okay, is it moral to withhold a benefit from a control group? But like, this isn't that this is maybe government should be a slightly less rich source of natural experiments in this (laughs) regard.
2: (laughs) Again, going back to like the kind of blue sky thinking, it's like, what if everybody did have a Fed bank account? And what if there was like some kind of income supporting measure such that if you fell below some threshold, you just automatically got boosted up, right? It's not impossible to imagine doing income support in a much more dynamic, immediate way. But, you know, that stuff gets really, really unpopular. And instead, we have this great system for running really cruel, natural experiments. And we let lots of people remain poor.
1: <laughs> it's kind of a tradition to, to end weeds is on unbelievably dour notes like that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
1: but on that, on that note, um, I think we're gonna wrap up for today. Um, thank you so much to, to Annie Lowry for coming on and thank you to Dara Lynn for being here as always. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.